Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Out My Way, where we discuss the more esoteric and non-traditional forms of music. Today is a great show. I'm really excited about sharing this with you. This is the first part of a long interview I did with Christopher Beach Eddy, who is in charge of the Sun Ra Archive podcast, as well as the Sun Ra Archive uh, blog. Christopher has studied, he's dived deep, he's immersed himself in and created somewhat of an exegesis of Sun Ra's many myriad of themes, musical styles, his personal history, and cosmology. This guy is a font of wisdom and incredibly humble at that. We talked about Sun Ra's spirituality, uh, what it was like keeping a big band going for so long, just what drew Krista to this music, as well as you know his favorite recommendations for newcomers to Sun Ra and why. And that's just some of the things we talked on. This is, this is one of my favorite interviews of the year, so I'm really excited to share this. But before we get into that, why don't we talk about why I consider Sun Ra as being in this outsider pantheon. I guess the first and most obvious thing is his uncompromising vision, despite what was going on around him, both musically, spiritually, politically, and socially. Sonny Blout, a.k.a. Sun Ra, did not take any drugs, did not drink, yet created some some of the most mind-altering music that's out there. He lived communally with his band for 40 years, and his band was loyal to him. They would practice any time of day and night, They released a lot of their own music through their own label, El Saturn. They did a lot of their own artwork. It was a completely homemade project. The band itself could play 40s standards, could play Disney tunes, and could get as interstellar with their improvisations as any band of the time. Sun Ra was a master arranger, and their shows was were multi-dimensional affairs, where there would be dancers, both Egyptian and outer space themed costumes, sometimes lighting, lots of percussion and bells and chants, and it just, it was a full-on uh, ritual, really. So, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to see him twice, which it's a crime that I only saw him twice because I had many opportunities. That's one of my big regrets is that I didn't. When I first saw Sun Ra at the age of 15 or 16, it was a lot to take in and he was very quote-unquote far out to me in a what seemed like eccentric way and Of course, he was a little eccentric, but he has so much depth, heart, 
and vision to them that I just didn't get at the time. All I saw was the trappings. But there was something about the music that just touched me in a way that I couldn't explain, and it took years to be able to understand. What he did with harmonics and uh, tones was innovative, and he really did try to elevate consciousness with his music somewhat successfully, I think. And his philosophy, you know, he was all about the uh, black empowerment and the way he devoured esoteric tomes on Egyptian cosmology, spirituality, African spirituality, Western mysticism, and synthesized all these things into a science fiction liberation drama is just mind-boggling. And not only did he do the music and arrange the music, choreography, etc., but he was an artist, he was a poet, he was a writer, he was, like I said, a visionary. And it's taken me years to really just dip my toe in the water of how deep that well goes. And it seems infinite. He said he's from Saturn, and, you know, who am I to say he isn't? Anyhow, I'm kind of rambling now, but just take take all those disparate uh, random thoughts as a foreshadowing of the waters we're about to wade into. This man was and remains an enigma. I mean, Christ, there's at least a handful of scholars that devote huge chunks of their life to studying his music and his philosophy and delving into whatever they can, like like uh, ontological detectives to find the hidden key to, to unlock his philosophy and his gift to this world. And maybe this sounds a little elegaic, but it, it's absolutely what I think, how I feel. I mean, not only did I just recently finish up A Pure Solar World, a book about him by Paul Youngquist, and Space is the Place is a classic biography about him that's been out for a while, but there's been a, a slew of new reissues and recently discovered live and studio material that's being released, and it's just amazing to be able to unveil all these things. So anyway, as you can tell, I love this stuff, and and I can't get enough, and I feel like i got to make up for lost time on all of it. But that's why we got people like Chris to help lead the way. So let's jump right into my conversation with Christopher Eddy of Sun Ra Archive. And I'll see you on the other side of the wormhole.
For this, only thing is treat me like an infant as far as my Sun Ra knowledge because I basically am. I I saw him back in 85 and that was the only time, unfortunately. Maybe it's 86 actually. And I've had a few albums over the years and I'm just now starting to build a, a, a substantial collection and dive deep in the books the history all that so you know okay. I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the opposite of your of your usual guests <laughs> okay well you know I don't I don't want to spend all of this stuff um I know off, I know off the record yeah, exactly uh but I, I will just suffice it to say and I think it's an important comment to make for for listeners is that I'm an infant too there's no, there's no such thing as a Sun Ra expert in my mind. I, yeah. I, I've been listening to Sun Ra for 30 plus years and I've heard, you know, um, tens of thousands of songs and every known record and every concert I could get my hands on. And I'm an infant as well. Yeah. So <laughs> we're all learners here. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind with Sun yeah. Ra's there. There is no such thing as an expert, and that's what makes him and the band so unique and interesting. So totally understood. Cool. Th thank you so much for uh, taking the time to stop by, Christopher. My um, pleasure. I'm fascinated to learn why you wanted to talk to me, and I, ho <laughs> I hope I can help. Well, you know, like myself, and I'm sure many, if not all my listeners, there's something so tantalizing and tasty about finding an artist that you can get just completely obsessive about and just dive in with both feet and still not not touch the bottom of of understanding so what better person obviously to to do that with than Sun Ra and so you know I guess a good place to start would be what was your uh initiation into the mystery of Mr. Ra? So I first heard the Sun Ra Orchestra around late 1990, early 91. And I was in college at the time. And I was fortunate enough that my local college radio station was fantastic. And I, I was a new volunteer there aspiring to get on air and be a DJ and there were so many wonderful shows and so many great um, teachers 
within that organization. And it was very involved and vibrant and varied in, in the type of free form music that it presented. And there was everything from polka to classical to a strong focus on, you know, the alternative indie music rock scene that was happening at the time, all the way through to, um, you know, kind of the emerging popularity of world music at the time, as well as really deep informed jazz programming. And this station at the University of Connecticut, which was 91.7 WHUS FM Stores, Connecticut, featured a world music show by a gentleman named Richard Segan. And a weekly feature of his show around the noon hour was a segment called Sunrise Cosmic Corner. Hmm. And every week he would play about 15 minutes of Sun Ra music. And that was the first time that I heard uh, Sun Ra's music. And I became immediately interested in my, and my curiosity was piqued. And I used to sit with uh, Maxell XL 90 cassettes on a weekly basis and mm-hmm. tape these segments. Mm-hmm. And after about five or six 90-minute cassettes were filled with this music, Richard, who had been a Sunra Orchestra fan going back to the late 70s, was instrumental in booking a gig with the orchestra and bringing them uh, to the Vondermaiden Recital Hall at University of Connecticut. Uh, in 1991 Mm. and it was a big event it was a big event for the radio station and you know it was a big event for the community because basically you know everybody that loved music in that area or a majority of the people that loved music would go out and support any kind of worthwhile music that came through and shows and because Richard was such a vocal and consistent proponent of the orchestra's music, everybody from the community was there that night, myself included. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know anything about the orchestra as far as their history or the deepness of the philosophical aspect or anything when I went to that first show. I just knew, you know, that I liked the tunes that I had heard. It touched upon so many aspects, uh, not only musical, you know, but uh, spiritually that interested me. And I knew that I just needed to be there. So my girlfriend and partner at the time, uh, and I bought tickets for the show and went. And I can honestly say, without any cliche that absolutely changed my life. It was a before and after moment for me. I have memories of, you know, not knowing other than Sunra. At the time I didn't know the names, June Tyson, John Gilmore, Marshall Allen. I had not seen any videos. The band came out and in my mind I have 
impressions of sparkling sequins and a band that seemed to never end as they filed onto stage <laughs> and so many different kinds of music that were played um, during that first set. And there were a couple of, you know, the popular space chants and, and tunes that I recognized from the radio um, during that concert, but it was just mesmerizing and, and magical and really high energy, mm-hmm. not only for the band's performance, but just the spirit in the room, a lot of love and support from the audience. And it was just a great introduction into the band. But what made, in retrospect, the biggest impression on me was after the break for set one, the band came on for set two and some sometime around 15 minutes or so in as is the case with lots of young college people i started to get you know uh in in my you know consistently sleep deprived state of the time started to get a little drowsy and just close my eyes to listen to the music at some point i drifted off to sleep or a slumbered state Uh And I'm absolutely convinced that listening to that second set or the majority of that second set in that non-waking on the verge of dreaming state allowed the music to absolutely connect with, you know, me on a deeper spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And when I left that show, it was not apparent to me how deeply I was changed. But in the days and weeks and months and years after that, it really dawned on me that being exposed to the music and taking it in, in those different states of consciousness, absolutely planted that proverbial seed because it's something that seemed to go deep within immediately. And, you know, 30 years later, it's just as deep and just as profound and has grown consistently um, in that time. So it made a huge lasting impression. Yeah, that's a great recounting of that experience and how, uh, like, magical and the... uh almost magic with a K uh, sense of being in that hypnagogic state, which is kind of the state that uh, some people would in the past would do rituals or that say uh, uh, where hypnosis uh, takes place in those kind of states where those beneath layer of consciousness, you know, depth, like you said, of the ability to plant a seed and, in that space is really powerful, like you said, uh, to be able to touch you in that spiritual vibration that way in that state, you know, is pretty special and yeah, special sure. and powerful. Yeah, I was gonna yes. say. And more importantly, or, or I think it's worth calling out, although I never met Sun Ra, so 1991 was the you know the later years of right. his touring life. And my deep involvement with going to see concerts and getting, you know, the the opportunity to meet the band happened after Sun Ra left the planet. 
so you know the caveat here is that I never met Sunra, I didn't talk to him, and and I don't. I'm not saying this to cavalierly speak for him, but I believe that that effect is that was absolutely intentional on his part and the musician's part, mm-hmm. and it was really just a case of for those that have ears to hear that that was one of the many intended outcomes right. of his music and performance. And I think that that is one aspect of Sun Ra that because of the nature of the subject and because of the, the depth and inaccessibility of, of that information you referred to magic with a K mm-hmm. is absolutely an era of Sun Ra that is probably one of the more deserving facets of his work that um, I think could really benefit from someone being brave and crazy enough to try and analyze and document a little bit further that, that ancient hidden um, spiritual magical component and the intention and the effects is just something that really does not get talked about I think with any kind of depth or consistency that's really you know one of the biggest areas of benefit for a listener yeah. other than the musical enjoyment and yeah, maybe it's a, the it's philosophic a huge, enjoyment yeah it's, it's a huge blind spot that that not that I have extensive uh not that i've read or explored every known uh analysis of of the of his work and and of the man himself but yeah it seems like that was such a huge part of who he was and the use of invocation and evocation in his music to uh alter and, and elevate consciousness and it is uh it is surprising and it is yeah just surprising that that it hasn't been deeply delved into well and it's the nature of the subject matter right it's it's intended to be hidden but Mm. Sun Ra was so repeatedly consistent in the language that he used to Mm -hmm. talk about the intention of what he was doing and the thing that is top of mind for me is the coding and permutations of language Yes, yes. I I love that you said that because as soon as we got on this topic, that's the first thing that came into besides the use of uh, yeah, the besides the imagery and the use of color and and costume, the the his use his very specific and playful but very specific use of language, which you know go speak of the state that you heard his music in. Uh, the use of the proper language, you know, just bypasses the uh, normal gatekeepers of of uh, waking consciousness as it is, and I think that was very intentional. Seems very intentional to my mind. Yeah, absolutely. the The idea of the homonym, and that everything that he was producing and communicating seem to intentionally have multiple layers of meaning and interpretation encoded in them so that, you know, someone could come to the music purely for musical entertainment and enjoy it 
and enjoy it on that level as far as the sound vibration mm-hmm. and you know mathematics and the strange equations that he spoke of is not my strong suit i'm not a numerically mathematically minded person but then the deconstruction of the music on a mathematical equational level mm-hmm. and then the language and the art and the presentation of the band it's just wow i mean we've already cast off the shore to the deepest Mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. deepest widest area of of the ocean possible there's no touching the bottom ever once mm-hmm. we start going down that road but yeah it's a it, that's a really interesting facet of of sunrod to me that i constantly think about and try and understand not only for myself personally but with the idea of Sunra Archive as a as sharing of my process as a learner, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of that in a way that I can articulate and share with other people that right. might be on that learning path and interested is not something that I've ever been able to come to terms with. And, and I, I'm co- the thing not that I'm actually anywhere. coming, well, the thing that I'm actually coming to terms with now um, is that is the acceptance that I probably n- will never be able to come to terms with it and articulate it, and that <laughs> and that and enjoying the beauty and the mystery of that, right? I mean, yeah. everybody has a different kind of mind, and and my my particular mindset is that I want to be able to quote unquote understand everything you know, from, from my personal perspective, but, you know, the added dimension to the choice that I made uh, early on, you know, in sharing my study so that anybody that came behind me that was questing for the information that I had tried so hard to pull together could stand up on my shoulders and benefit from that work and be that further ahead to, to, right. to reach some kind of answer or, uh, enlightenment, you know, was, was trying to wrangle it and, 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 um, you know, be able to articulate it and, and, um, parse it out in all the ways that our Western minds prefer to have information served up. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm starting to reach the conclusion in, in this year of my life that perhaps that's a fool's errand. It will never happen. And really there, for me to expect that that would happen or wish for that to happen uh, is absurd and and maybe missing the whole point. It's Mm, unknowable. It's infinite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's yeah. That's a great way to put that. Which brings me to, uh, I could go in a few different side streams here. I'm trying to think of which path to take, but yeah, I, I like, I really love that you, have that kind of humbleness about the about the uh, task you've undertaken um and the the quest and the understanding and the yeah to the, the understanding that you may never understand but also the resonance with the not just the philosophic but the spiritual element of it and which you know I noticed and was going to ask you about on your on your Facebook 
personal Facebook profile, you you had a uh, your quote that you have on there is a Dowdy Chain quote, and uh, I was going to ask you about that and and how that might relate to how you relate to Sun Ra's material. Well, I mean, the Dow is the most succinct, understandable, profound written word that I've been able to find and draw on for um, guidance and, and calming and inspiration in my life. And I think, I mean, so for, for me personally, there's absolutely a through line to Sun Ra, but there's a through line to everything else. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, that, that particular quote, let me just bring it up here because I don't in the heat of the moment here, I don't have it committed to memory, although it's something that, that I've read you know, sure. a hundred times in my life. And I think I just paraphrase it on, on Facebook. So, well, and it depends on which, you know, all the different translations, it's all yeah. paraphrased. So, so Stephen Mitchell is my go-to Okay, good. Yeah, in that case. I prefer. Yeah. So I studied um, Tai Chi mm -hmm. when I was in college as well. This would have been concurrently to when I was discovering Sun Ra. And my teacher uh, gifted me with the Stephen Mitchell translation. And that was the first one that I read. It resonated very clearly with me and I have since sought out other translations of the Tao and for who I am and where I was raised, the time and culture I was raised in, it's the clearest, most resonant translation. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert on the Tao, so I don't have any opinion or professions about its accuracy or the validity of other translations, but that particular one was the first one that came to me and then all the ones that I've read since the one that I always return to. Sure. So, yeah, so that's that quote that you refer to is chapter eight of the Tao Te Ching, which is the supreme good is like water, which nourishes all things without trying to It is content with the low pit places that people disdain. Thus it is like the Tao for, for me personally, that's, those are the words that I, tried to live by and remind myself of for me it's just a healthy perspective mm -hmm. to live by and I think to 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 your point it absolutely translates to being a student of Sun Ra or at least my philosophy of being a student of Sun Ra because it accepts that the cosmos and nature is at the origin and the heart of all of the knowledge that has come forth since, and it respects the source. And in, in the case of the orchestra, the source being Sun Ra and the group of master musicians that gathered around him mm -hmm. for so many years as being the source uh, of, you know, orchestral knowledge and always deferring to them as the masters and 
taking their work and their music and everything that they did at face value and and being reminded that, that, that no matter how many paths uh, I may chase down personally kind of in this study and how either for my particular mindset or the intellectual culture that I was educated in, the goal is always the answer, the end point, the product, what you have to show for it, the result. But that is truly not the case if you, if you look at life through a, the perspective that, of the Tao, sure. but also for me is of the absolute utmost importance when approaching the orchestra from any level other than a modern music consumer standpoint, right? You know, and, and, and again, to always be mindful that in the pursuit of interpretation and knowledge that the, the only true authority is Sunrun the orchestra, that there is no other interpretation other than what they presented mm-hmm. and that ultimately they're the owners of their expression and their content. And just, you know, I always try to be mindful of that because of their history, because of the culture that they came up in, mm-hmm. not only socially, but musically and from a business standpoint to just always be careful that there's no authority or ownership implied in any of my endeavors, that it's purely as a learner and it's purely Mm -hmm. in the spirit of sharing. Oh yeah. So, and and everybody's, everybody that takes the time to think about much less present this type of uh, deep exploration and expression, it's, obvious you know there's no way to do it without your own filter so yeah i like that you said that about uh you know being mindful that no matter what things you come to the the bottom line at the end of the day is is sun ra's intention and the orchestra's intention they're you know the sole proprietors like you said absolutely and that by looking looking at anything through our filters, our personal filters, we immediately and irreparably distort the origin. Mm-hmm. And so I try to be mindful of that out of respect for the musicians and the work. And also to keep my head straight over the years as far as why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> And what's the goal of it, but also so that uh, fellow appreciators of of this art form and all the facets of it can be reminded at at any place in their journey, whether they're brand new to it or or whether they are more seasoned in it and think that they know it all, that the real benefit of it on a personal level is, is taking it in through your own filter. Mm-hmm. Right, that's where the real benefit and lies 
right? So it's oh, not, absolutely. it's, you know, what anyone else says or writes or interprets is, is only just a small it's experiential, facet. experiential journey. Right. And that, but, and, and that in being mindful as well, and, and making sure to always defer um, credit ownership and mm-hmm. respect back to the orchestras that any benefit that any of this conversation and appreciation generates is that should be theirs always. Yeah, that's a great point. And that brings up uh, something that I've, and I'm sure I'm not the first that I've thought of just recently. Uh, I've listened to, as I've told you about, I I jumped in the stream of your uh, podcast, your you know, thoughtful and uh, very er, well articulated, you and your guests take on things, your investigation, I should say. I'm aware of, I read Space is the Place, I'm I'm reading uh, Solar Wind, and I've got the discography book, you know, I'm, I'm diving in right now. And, you know, one thing I can't, I, I could be wrong about this, but, you know, Tell me about the, you know, the, because we're talking about ownership and, and where credits do, and, and some people have had some uh, just great writing about and uh, pointing people back towards, you know, the, the work itself. It's strange that, you know, Sun Ra had such a Afrocentric empowerment message and that so many of the uh, Sun Ra scholars tend to be you know like myself and and yourself <laughs> not that i'm a scholar but uh middle-aged uh white men yeah so that question is something that i think about a lot and always have and confused by and struggle with and i'm very sensitive to so i don't have any answers to that question and I feel very conscientious about positing any theories on it because it's really a hornet's nest sure. <laughs> um, culturally yeah. and and I don't even know how to begin to unravel that you know it, but it's a very valid point and it is it is true in many cases you know but we need to remember authors and educators like thomas stanley who has taught sunra as a part of his curriculum at the collegiate level who has you know written about Sun Ra and spoken about Sun Ra is a broadcaster that plays Sun Ra is a musician that makes uh, music inspired by Sun Ra who I, I believe, you know, is African American. I've never met Thomas. So Uh I don't want to, I don't want to say anything that's wrong or speak for him. (laughs) So, but you know, I guess the, the only observation that, that I might be able to, you know, to, to theorize on from, from my personal experience, speaking of me, sure, yeah. might be 
the culture that I was raised and educated in, some of the societal benefits of that education and the ability that I was given to pursue um, lines of study and to be able to have um, just the time and the environment to pursue the luxury of an extended, um, you know, line of study like that. But I have to be honest with you, you know, even in hearing myself say that, I think it's not, it, it may be an exception and is not the rule or the truth. And I just, I feel incredibly ill-equipped to answer that question in any way that would be helpful to you or a listening audience. No. It's so, it's so rare that, that I get a chance to talk to anybody that's even interested in the subject, mm-hmm. that it's incredibly important to me to, to share e- either whatever it is that I've learned with uh-huh. someone like yourself that asked the question, but also maybe even equally importantly, what I haven't learned and what I haven't been able to figure out and what mm-hmm. I've come up against mm-hmm. so that if you continue to pursue yeah. th- that line of, of thought that you can benefit maybe from my experience. Your work. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes in, you know, kind of goes along the lines of what you're saying in the beginning with just the multiplicity of levels that Sun Ra that there's the the one level of multiplicity of of his intentional presentation and then there's the whole multiplicity of levels you know like we're just speaking of culturally and and socially etc so yeah, yeah it's a it's a huge it's a huge subject and i just wish that i was better um better equipped to coherently answer the question in, in a way that that would be beneficial to share because it's such a huge question, like, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like I, I'm already taking the conversation way off of course, <laughs> but you know, if, you know, we love music and, mm-hmm. and we love lots of bands and lots of different kinds of music and, and we get different things out of it. But with Sunrise, we have this opportunity to not only get the edification and the enjoyment of just pure music, but there's so much more to it that if we choose to, mm-hmm. that it, it can actually even more profoundly benefit our lives. And if we, if we care, if we extend that spiritual line of thinking that, you know, especially along sunrise lines that, you know, the, that our cosmos is infinite Mm-hmm. Then to be tied to earthly convention and classification of people and race is to me antithetical to the whole idea of what ultimately I think Sun Ra might have been reaching for, which is a mm-hmm. place beyond all of this earthly convention. And yet we're still mired in all of that convention and I think it really profoundly affects how clearly how we can even talk about and share Sun Ra especially kind of in our current climate 
right? Like Absolutely. who who is who are these guys to even think that should be that allowed to talk about Sun Ra, right? <laughs> they're not even properly equipped to do so. So I think it's really unfortunate, honestly. Yeah. I think we could really learn a lot by being able to have this conversation on a greater scale. Oh, definitely. And yeah, that's, that's a big thing. Like you said, a big question, question mark, just boom on that whole entire set area. But yeah, there's like a few different lines uh, as usual with, (laughs) with, with, with good interviews, I think Uh, from the interviewer side, like that I could, you know, pull the string on. Yeah. And, and, Please forgive me. I, I don't mean to overstep and I want to be conversational, but may I ask you a question? <laughs> sure, sure. So, and then this might help kind of get us on, on, on a useful on track as yeah, far as yeah. your podcast. And my question or, or my interest is why would you even want to speak to me to begin with? Right. So, I mean, we could, <laughs> We could sit and and talk about Sun Ra and how we interpret it endlessly and, and for hours, but it sounded to me like part of what you were curious about as a fellow podcaster and as someone that that you know is like minded in some ways is in is that there was something that you thought that you could ask or I could share with you that would help you kind of in your pursuit is that correct not what necessarily case? in okay. the podcast sphere okay definitely in the sun Ra okay. uh, sphere for sure and yeah. i just i get us i i'm insanely to the detriment of uh i mean i've got it but in detriment to the to my analytic side i'm in, insanely intuitive so I follow that more than anything and hearing your podcast, seeing your po- that your podcast existed, then hearing it and the level of detail you go into, which comes from a place of, I can tell of love, not out of, you know, not out of OCD, you know, need to understand the mind aspect. So, you know, the, the subject of Sun Ra himself is, is one thing that yeah i want to dive deep you know even deeper into than i've been than i have yet and i don't know why either because seeing him live changed my life too and somehow i went back to i didn't go back you know i went back to my life different but i didn't continue like peeling the layers back on on the sun ra uh, message experience and music so that and you know just yeah you as a you know i like to really get to get a sense of uh, the person I decide to interview, what they're, what motivates them, what the, the usual, but you know, of any interviewer, but like really get a sense of your character as well as of some of the questions I have about uh, your understanding of Sun Ra. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just want to be a value, right? So. Oh, so far I've been, it's, it's been great. Like I love that we went into the, the spiritual thread of woven through his, you know, very prominent and prominently through his work and that's a like you said it's an area i'm sure i mean who who know you know we can't presume to, to know a hundred percent but he wouldn't put it all right there in his writing and his lyrics and 
this presentation without wanting that to be acknowledged or resonated with to uh, touch that area. And I'll tell you, like, for me, originally, you know, I was 15 or 16 when I saw them. And yeah, it blew my mind. And I didn't fully grasp the depth of his his actual mind and character. I knew as a musician, I could instantly tell his depth and his commitment. But at that moment, as a teenager, I just thought he was, quote unquote, far out, you know, kind of uh, potentially a little little out there, not eccentric sense, not in a like really grounded, super knowledgeable and, and embodied sense which I do understand now. Yeah, and he was all those things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that's part of the the fun and the beauty of Sun Ra is that there's so many multiplicities to his work mm-hmm. that it can really be anything that you want it to be, meaning you can get whatever out of it that you're looking for. True. Right? I mean, if, if you're of a certain mindset, all perspectives and all interpretations are potentially valid right if you're dealing with something that mm-hmm. is that uh, is and professes and acknowledges to be of the infinite i mean that's that's en- endlessly interesting and entertaining if, as a music fan right mm-hmm. so oh, the yeah. spiritual component and all of the knowledge that's conveyed in the music is a whole other thing that makes it deeper and richer. But, you know, I think you can just go back to how we came across Sun Ra, and that's just music fans, mm-hmm. hearing records, seeing shows at our local clubs or concert halls through the, the filter of, you know, the, of 20th century music fans. Go to record stores, buy records, uh, listen to the radio, watch MTV, that in and of itself is endlessly entertaining and fulfilling. And it can, it can be just that, and it can be blown out to any proportion uh, that you want. And and honestly, I've never come across another musician that I can say the same for. So probably like yourself and probably like many of your listeners, you know, I love lots of, and lots of music. And mm-hmm. I love lots and lots of music intently, obsessively, you know, to go back to just, you know, being music fans and record collectors. You know, yeah. when I get into a band, I've yeah. got all the albums, right. I've got all the singles, I got to find the B-sides. I, you know, you're, you're all in. Sun Ra's not the only artist that I had that to a, to a quote unquote normal person, that I would be this fanatical about. It just so happens that Sun Ra, for me, is the deepest, widest, most never-ending of all of those, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, another example, just to to give context, would be someone like uh, Frank Zappa. Right. You know, who, again, highly original, unique worldview, unique musical expression recorded over many, many years, many different styles of music for many different labels. So has, you know, a likewise 
deep and rich catalog and I've, I continue to and always will listen to him. Uh-huh. Like he's one of the greatest musical minds, you know, uh, you know, of, of his time. And, and, you know, again, like Sunra had his own language, oh, yeah. his own conceptual continuity. Uh, but, but even someone like him with the utmost respect for someone like Frank, mm-hmm. Sunra, even for me, exceeds that. Oh, well, I mean, Sun Ra has the, as you said, the spiritual component that I would think Frank Zappa would vehemently uh, voice that he does not, or is opposed to, you know, even if it's there, you know, even if there's no way to not be spiritual, you know. Yeah, and and I completely understand what you're saying, but I, I would say that at his core, even though Frank would probably have disagreed with and objected to some of the words uh-huh. used like spiritual, he was a deeply spiritual connected individual. He just had his own way of expressing it. But I mean, mm-hmm. at the core of his language, someone like a Sun Ra, you know, when you, when you get into that, his philosophy of the big note or Zeno crony or Zeno chronological musical thought where mm-hmm. his whole produced output is actually all just facets of one, one complete yeah. never ending work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very similar to Sun Ra. So Frank might have scoffed at spirit at the word spiritual in based on the times that he was brought up in in relating that to organized religion yeah. and all of that malarkey that he that he objected to but you know i think he was deeply spiritual and i guess going back to you know the, well, the idea yeah. of sunrise it's all how you perceive it sure right? sure and, and with, right and obviously in some of the depth and grandness of someone like frank zappa's music i don't know about lyrically but you know I think that was, he had a different agenda lyrically, so. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, like he often said, you know, lyrics were sometimes, you know, a reticently accepted byproduct or, or assignment that he was tasked with as being a recording <laughs> artist of his time and that he couldn't get away with doing instrumental music Mm. as a popular recording art- artist on a major label at his time. Right, right. Um, but I, I guess all, you know, my, my point ultimately is, is it kind of goes back to interpretation of words as Sun Ra always talked about, like what is spiritual? Mm-hmm. How do we define that? And do, you know, are we even, is there even any ultimate benefit in trying to do so? And, and, quantifying or qualifying our musical or quote-unquote spiritual enjoyment of music right like my one of my favorite quotes from the john john sweat space is the place uh-huh. book is yeah. is the is the anecdote related by one of the orchestra members about our late 70s recording session you know around the time of languidity or on jupiter or sleeping beauty when mm-hmm. there was kind of a stronger disco element right, to the right. music and, and the musicians in between takes were scoffing at disco and that this is some hokey shit sonny you know 
and Sun Ra, you know, said, and this is the quote that I love is, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, basically don't judge so harshly because this music represents someone's hopes and dreams. Mm. Right. So again, it's a good reminder, the spiritual aspect, what is hokey uh, to one person could be deeply spiritual to another. And like, you know, I guess we can only define that for ourselves. Right. Which is, no, that's a, that's a very valid and very true point. I'm glad you, you said that, that it sets the, that's a, a, a very uh, easy trap to fall in. And, and I have many times as a music writer and now podcaster, less and less, I hope, but you know, the, the, the trap of thinking you have any place to judge in whatever manner and whatever level another's uh, expression. Yeah. And you know, of course we do it. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have to, we're human beings. We require judgment. It's just hardwired, you know, but, and, and not to say that I don't do it all the time. If you were to ask my, my spouse who has to um, kind of support this level of fanaticism that I pursue, mm-hmm. you know, she would be the first to say that I'm to- a total snob when it comes <laughs> to, to basically anything, music and art, even mm-hmm. though I would pride myself internally on being open-minded and not judging other people's things. Where, I mean, that's human nature. That's, yeah. that's yeah. what we all are. But, well, um, and it, that probably goes back without without getting too far off the subject. That probably, I imagine, goes back to some type of survival instinct, you know, of uh, judging something is is pleasant or unpleasant for survival nature. You know, back when we lived outside in the wild, you know, <laughs> being able to discriminate and and uh, on a on a more primal level danger or that sort of thing yeah but uh yeah so that was going to be something i asked you about your <laughs> i'm sure to whatever degree she understands because she's under she's with you but does she share your your level of uh immersion and love for sunra no <laughs> she no. tolerates Uh, she's, she's very understanding. So, you know, as anybody that gets in in any kind of, um, you know, relationship with someone that they care about does, you know, in the early stages, you want to bond and share the things that you love and Mm -hmm. find out what your common ground is. And yes, I, I took her to several orchestra shows and, you know, she had the, the wonderful opportunity to, to meet the band and, you know, kind of get an experience where if she was going to be immersed, she mm-hmm. would have certainly been in the right place to do so. Um, but no, she's, she's not a fan, but she absolutely, absolutely res- respects their work, but no, not a fan. And I, I think, you know, it, it she she would love it and find it incredibly humorous if we got her uh on the line for the every person's um commentary on <laughs> on 
what a quote unquote normal person thinks of Sun Ra because <laughs> I hear that uh, all all of the time um, <laughs> when I'm listening to stuff that that you know seems relatively comfortable to me and she's just <laughs> like what <laughs> what are you doing but no I mean but she's supportive and she That's recognizes yeah. the value of it um, musically the, the the one thing that her and I do agree on is the Grateful Dead yeah, that's. I almost went there with when you brought up uh, Frank Zappa as far as so as far as a band that you could dive into and get pretty deep with, and that does have to whatever degree, you know, a very, uh, you know, you could get a spiritual level. You could you've got the musical layers of uh, development and immersion and everything else, like yeah. And philosophic, you know, and that sp- that do-it-yourself spirit that Sun Ra had and that, you know, people with vision that want to do it, want to present their art the way that they see it. And that's the only way, that, you know, to, to really birth this thing into the world in a respectful and, you know, honoring of the actual music's way. Absolutely. And The Grateful Dead is, a, is another huge love of mine and was actually i think for for all intents and purposes was musically my gateway to sun Ra, interestingly oh yeah so you know in the 80s well in the 80s when i would have been a teenager you know i i was raised like you know a lot of my peers of the generation on classic rock radio Right. So the first band that I really loved when I was about six years old was the Beatles. Right. Me too. Despite all of the music and cultural value of that music, I think the primary through point for me uh, is imagination mm-hmm. and wonder. Right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, and, and from the Beatles, I evolved through all of the classic rock bands um, and you know, in the 80s, what I would have, would have been a teenager, it was the height of, you know, well, the height of indie American punk rock mm-hmm. and metal. Yeah. And, and indie, right? So that's the kind of teenager I was. And having diverse interests, I loved it all. Right. Um, but I, I probably erred more on the side, you know, if someone saw me walking down my high school hallway they would have called me a metalhead. Hmm. My yeah. love of punk rock was more the seventies and early American CBGB scene. And then the music inspired in, in the UK. Right? right. So I got into American, you know, indie punk rock and hardcore after the fact. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so something like the Grateful Dead or Sun Ra, absolutely would have not had resonated with me when I was a teenager, but I think it was just something I had to, to go through. Right. But mm-hmm. just keeping in mind the, the through line of the, the Beatles and imagination, that was always what I was looking for in, in music was some mm-hmm. form of, at the time I might have, you, you might've called it escape, but in retrospect, transcendence. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you know and, it, it, and it's something that makes your world seem that much uh, more magical mysterious larger all those sorts of things absolutely 
right? So as I got a little bit older and, and out of my teens and got a little bit smarter, I'm sure you were probably a member too, but you know, the Columbia Record Club. Oh yeah. yeah. 12, 12 records for a penny, right? Exactly. So yeah. as, as a rock kid who was reading Rolling Stone magazine and all the record guides and stuff like that, I started picking up jazz and blues, Miles mm-hmm. Davis kind of blue, Coltrane, mm-hmm. Love Supreme. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny because my wife who, you know, I mentioned, um, that the Grateful Dead's the one band that we agree on. She knew me and we were friends when I was in high school and she was a deadhead and Mm. deadheads in my school, at least it was really more, I perceived it more as like a, um, a click, a a social click. Uh And I never actually, no one actually ever really played Grateful Dead music that I heard. (laughs) So I was very like anti-dead and used to tease her about liking the dead because uh, I was just too dumb to get it. But well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, if you were into metal or punk or any kind of independent music in the eighties, it felt like the dead were the antithesis of that. And it was perceived as, you know, as much by the way much music is by the audience, the, you know, you think of, I would think of, uh, you know, these burnt out, just total stoner, you know, whatever people, uh, just burnouts as being the, the way I would think of people that would enjoy the dead. And, and so that's what I would think the dead would be like without really taking the time to look at the facet that of, of that, what that actual music, the core of that really was. Yeah, totally. Judging the music by judging the fans of the music, right? Mm-hmm. And and really, you know, I mean, the Grateful Dead from a DIY, grassroots, uh, self-created, self-sustaining scene standpoint actually has a lot uh, of parallels with the punk scene. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but anyway, so, you know, I started getting into jazz and blues and stuff. And then once I went to college, I was the perfect age you know, I understood American roots music and, and jazz and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I was the perfect age to actually get into the Grateful Dead and, and, and appreciate it musically because that the music's the thing for me, right? I don't care how great your scene is. If the music's no good, I don't, I don't care. So I started getting into the music, but more importantly, the tape trading culture mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Dark Star was the song for me with the Grateful Dead, right? So, you know, in a celestially, cosmologically (laughs) oriented, you know, 15 to 20 to 40 minute improvisation that goes to the outer reaches of space was the preparation for Sun Ra for me. That's so funny. Yeah, I could totally see that. And there's that, there's them doing the soundtrack to Twilight Zone there in the 80s, the remake and you know their whole space jam (laughs) yeah absolutely so that that really kind of prepared me uh to be a samra fan to have the capacity for the depth and the variety but but more importantly as far as putting it on my radar at the time you know um 
the evidence CD reissues of Sunra's catalog were coming out. They were being reviewed in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. They were reviewed in lots of magazines, including, you know, something like Relics magazine, which catered to what was then the Grateful Dead scene, yep. but the jam band community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the charitable arm of the Grateful Dead organization, the Rex Foundation, that supported arts and culture through grants, um, yep. which is uh, Phil Lesh nominated uh, funds to go to the Sun Ra Orchestra. Oh. So hmm. when I heard, oh, you know, the, the Dead and Phil Lesh, who was a musician that I incredibly deeply admired, who had hmm. roots in avant-garde yep. music, et cetera, you know, it's was, got Terrapin out here, uh, just yeah. down the street. Uh, it's, that's one really nice thing about uh, living out here is being able to see out. He plays free out there all the time. Yeah. And with lots of great musicians. Exactly. Yeah. But, but yeah, anyway. so, so, so that, you know, validation and, you know, oh, it's this Sunra Orchestra. It's a band who sings about outer space and, and I love Dark Star and, you know, one of the three things I wanted to be when I was a little boy was an astronaut, an archaeologist, and a rock star. Like the <laughs> orchestra at Sun Ra, this sounds like right <laughs> in my wheelhouse. You know, these Egyptian uh, costume wearing record cover picture band that is from outer space. Like what could be better? And mm-hmm. it, nothing could have been better. It was, it was perfect. Yeah. And, and so when you saw you, you talk about that first show you saw well first hearing and taping the uh the radio show and then going to see them when did when do you feel like you crossed the threshold into uh the type of uh wanting to know everything possible about uh the orchestra and dive into every note that they've done when did you reach that kind of uh it was it was immediately after, but I didn't know what that meant, right? So I spoke about the DJ, Richard Segan, uh, you know, who worked at that local radio station, who was friends with the band and got them booked at that concert. I worked, in addition to, you know, working at the radio station, I worked at the ro- local record store, and we were stocking those Sunra Evidence reissue CDs that Richard was playing on the radio all the time. So within a short amount of time, and and it's hazy to me now in retrospect, but within a short amount of time, as I stood in the record store working one night, standing in front of the stack of probably about 15 or 20 Sun Ra titles in the CD section, you know, the jazz CD section, I called him on the phone out of the blue. We had never met before. He was only someone I knew his voice on the radio, called him on the phone, said, I loved the show. Mm-hmm. I want to know more. What CDs should I buy? And basically, will you teach me everything that you know? Mm-hmm. And miraculously and, and luckily, he said, yeah, yeah, of course. Come on over. And we became friends you know, for the rest of our time together and uh he i was very lucky to have a mentor in sunra which i think is you know important for anything in life that, mm-hmm. but for sunra it was so valuable because at that point he had probably already seen 
you know, 50 to 75 concerts. He had already been buying all of the Saturn LPs going back to the seventies directly at the shows, directly from the band. Um, So, so, and, and at that time, you know, although I think right now, as far as being a Sun Ra fan is the golden age, as far as our immediate accessibility to the recorded catalog and so many great scholarly works, as well as the online community, that was a really exciting time to get introduced to the band because not only was Sun Ra still uh, on the planet and leading the orchestra, the evidence CD reissues were coming out. He was being written about with more frequency uh, in nationally available publications like Goldmine Magazine, Downbeat Magazine, Rolling right. Stone, and also the John Schwed book was, mm-hmm. you know, coming out around that time. Shortly after that, or around that time, the Hartmut Gierken original version of the Omniverse Sun Ra book came out. Um, the Earthly Recordings of Sun Ra by Dr. Robert Campbell, edition one, followed by, you know, edition two mm-hmm. in later years was out the Rhapsody label had released Sun Ra's edited cut of Space is the Place on VHS for the first time, uh, as well as Robert Muggy's documentary, A Joyful Noise. Yeah. So when I said to Richard, I love this music, I want to know everything that there is, teach me. I came over to his house and he showed me A Joyful Noise mm. immediately. Right. Uh, and we would watch it religiously repeatedly after that. He showed me, you know, those early books, which, and, and you know, the Gierkin Omniverse book, you know, in the early 90s, I think for him with shipping from overseas was like an 80 or or $100 book. Yeah, so for then. a poor, you know, <laughs> for a poor kid who, who was either living in an apartment or, you know, in the back of a, you know, in the back of a van, that was not something I would ever um, be able to afford. So it was like when I would go to his house, I would politely and humbly ask, can I see the book? (laughs) And I read the book and hold it. I mean, I still remember it sounds silly in retrospect, but it was, it was so magical and so meaningful. Like Mm -hmm. it, it was, you know, it, there was a lot more Sunrise stuff available to me um, at the time than there would have been to a fan coming up, you know, in the in the 80s or the 70s. But even then, those few things were like mm-hmm. treasures, like treasures, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, so immediately from there, I got into it. And working at the record store, I bought all of the currently in print CDs. And, and I don't know anybody that was a, a record fan or shopper back in the day before the internet, you know, any good record store at the front would have their um, ordering catalog from their distributors. Uh-huh. This huge binder of thousands of pages, like many phone books put together, and you'd be able to flip through it for your special orders. So I was able through the record store to ask them to special order, you know, the ESP records, which in the 90s were available on import, but Uh from the XYZ label in Europe. So, you know, at that time, there was probably maybe 25 or 30 Sunrise CDs in print. And that seemed huge. <laughs> and, and then from there, it was, 
you know, trying to find tape, cop tape cassettes of, from people that had the Saturn records because they were so rare. Yeah, sure. You know? and, and so, and, and I, you know, even if you could find them, could you afford them? And I sure. couldn't, and right. I still can't. I've never been say, able to afford yeah. them in my lifetime. It, now, um, now more than ever, you can't afford them. Yeah, so or finding one record and, and getting a tape dub mm -hmm. or having pen pals and writing in the, in the, via the snail mail, and this is where the Grateful Dead education and tape trading came into play, you know, mm -hmm. like finding people that you could write to and, you know, can I trade you a 90-minute cassette of my whatever it is for mm -hmm. your to your cassette of I Pharaoh or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, rare Sun Ra album it was, but, you know, and also being in a college town, I had the benefit of, of the college library and the, and the music school library. So I would go in there and this is, this is really where Sun Ra archive started. Okay. Even though at the time it didn't have a name, okay. it only, it, I only gave it a name when I arrived at the idea that I should be sharing my study as I go so that the things that I was having such a difficult time finding could be available to other researchers and fans, right? Yeah. So I was going to the library and, you know, trying to find a downbeat magazine review of the ABC impulse records in the seventies and putting it on the photocopier for 10 cents a page mm -hmm. and, and slowly starting to gather these binders of photocopies or, you know, the, the two paragraph instance of Sun Ra in a music encyclopedia or a jazz encyclopedia. Um, and that's where it started. Right. Wow. So it was, yeah. it was all fronts. It was trying to hear the music, uh, trying to see the band and trying to start gathering any printed information. And it just kept going and it, it, it never stopped. And then, you know, later on, I became aware of John and Peter Hines from California who had the publication Sun Ra Research. Right. And they yeah. produced a self-made fanzine style publication of interviews they they conducted personally with Sun Ra and the orchestra when they were um, touring in California and the that their model and their diligence and their DIY uh, attitude so inspired me that that became the pattern or the inspiration for me that I'm not going to be able to get to a point where I'm writing a book like John Schwed. Uh, Campbell's already done his work. Anything I'm doing is just an addendum to that. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's not this huge, big commercial pro product, like we're conditioned to think everything has to take the form of, sure, um, yeah. but, but that, you know, that this is not a job, that this is a pursuit and mm -hmm. that, I'll give it a name and I'll just share the process and the research that's valuable um, that I can as I go and call it Sun Ra Archive. And that yeah. was directly inspired by the example that the Heinz brothers set. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, 
I mean, I, I figured you had to be very familiar with their their uh, magazine as you were coming up. Besides the archive and the podcast, do you feel drawn towards any other projects? You said you don't need to have the it wrapped up with a bow and a big commercial thing, but do you have anything on the horizon that that's kind of percolating for you? So, so to clarify, I didn't, I didn't intend to say that I don't need to have <laughs> a project and have it buttoned up. What uh -huh. I mean to say is that I haven't been able to figure it out and get it done. That's oh. always been the pursuit or the okay. ideal, right? Sure. And I, I'm, I'm a, a, an art and music and culture and information freak. That's what I love. You know, mm -hmm. I love standing in front of a shelf of books mm -hmm. and I love the idea of being able to distribute knowledge. And if I had been able to figure out what form this thing should take mm -hmm. and be able to, to garner the financial support to do it, I would have done it already. It's, it's that I am so, I have so much respect for the subject matter, believe that uh, like some of the examples that have been set um, by other people like the Heinz brothers, John Schwed, Robert Campbell, Hart McGeerkin, Robert Muggy, that mm -hmm. anything that, need, that, sh that should be done needs to be at least definitive for the moment and comprehensive and worthwhile of the, the Sun Ra Orchestra's legacy, that I would have done it if I had a thesis mm -hmm. and if I had a medium, which is why I've pursued things the way that I have, right? So, you know, in the early days, it was photocopies that added up into binders that ended up getting translated and combined with uh, designed pages and a page layout program mm -hmm. combined with images that became printed Xeroxed books that I would take to, you know, a, a Kinko's copies and have comb bound that ended up piling up on my shelf and mm. tape libraries, you know, what ended up happening for me because I couldn't, because I was open to and entranced by the entirety of the subject matter and all the hot possibilities and didn't want to focus on just one facet for one mm -hmm. medium, right. I, I ended up putting myself in a position that I overloaded <laughs> myself as far as what a potential outcome of sharing that could be, which is why it has taken the form that it has, really, yeah. right? Which is to date a nonprofit curation and sharing of information that's not, that's that's really not proprietary or I claim any authorship of across whatever medium is affordable and available to me at the time. Mm -hmm. right? So it could have started with photocopies and sharing that with friends and, and mailing those out to, to, you know, sharing them with people via the mail, you know, in, in 2002 when I actually kind of gave it a name because something had to be on the cover of Sun Ra Archive, it was creating these PDF 
e zines like you know the mm-hmm. web version of uh, yeah of the fans, yeah. and sharing those online uh in 2002 with a via a friend of mine suso navarrete who was a um Sun Ra fan in Spain who was a webmaster at the time, mm, which mm-hmm. seemed, you know, seemed like such a, you know, mystical art in and of itself. <laughs> right, and yeah. he hosts those on the website. But in my mind, the Sun Ra archive in that magazine form, always in my mind's eye was a printed product, right? That's part of my professional background is as a graphic designer, see, you know, yeah. so, so to have that, you know, the way I designed it was in my mind's eye, it was a glossy bound printed product. I didn't have the support system or the finances to do that. So it went on the internet, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and then, you know, after in 2008, um, the blogging platforms became available. So I started or available to me. So I started the blog, which was basically just kind of like, a digital version of those photocopy binders, okay, right? Yeah. I've got, here's something I found today. I'm going to share it, you know, coming from a radio and production standpoint with that experience and that love of the medium, I always wanted to do a sunrise radio show. And I mm-hmm. always wanted to do a, a sunrise podcast uh-huh. going back to the beginning of podcasts. Cause I love podcasts. Yeah, me too. I'm a huge fan and of all, whatever it is that you love or that I love, mm-hmm. I love learning and listening to it via podcast. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's, it's so great. And it's ironic for, for this specific one since I don't, I mean, you don't either actually, but uh, since I don't have a co-host, but I, I love hearing just people hearing conversations on podcasts about people who are so invested in uh, whatever the subject may be like hearing a, you know, two people that are talking about on a higher level or deeper level, I should say, whatever subject it's, it's so intoxicating to me. Yeah, me too. I think it's a really, when done right, you know, from, from my taste, mm-hmm. it's a really beautiful, pure form of communication that's, that's unlike anything else that we currently have available to us from a mass media standpoint. Um, the fact that the platforms themselves are accessible at some kind of free level, that the technology has reached a point where the point of entry isn't is only prohibited by your ability to have a mobile device, you know, and that the microphones are good enough and that there's onboarding recording capability that it kind of opens up the playing field. Someone that doesn't have access to or knowledge of the recording medium. Um, And the fact that if you choose to pursue it in this way, it's a commercial can be a commercial free medium without Mm -hmm. commercial Mm -hmm. breaks. And for people that want to be genuine and unfiltered and real and honest, it's a wonderful medium because, you know, you, I, I found in the podcast that I love, you can go as deep and as quote unquote real as you want to. And that's like what I thirst and hunger for. Yeah. 
Yeah, me too. And that's what like, cause watch, I don't want to get too diverted, but like watching, uh, you know, growing up watching late night talk shows or that sort of thing. I loved the interview sections, but they were always so short. And so, uh, you know, if they weren't scripted, it was great, but you know, then they would, after a couple minutes, like you said, have to get a commercial or this or that. So, you know, this once podcast really took off, it was exactly what, what I wanted to do, uh, despite being very introverted growing up and hating the sound of my own voice. Like somehow I found myself doing one too. (laughs) Yeah. And I can completely relate. I'm the same personality type, but that's, that's the beauty of, of this experience that we're sharing in this medium is that people like ourselves that might have that personality type and, and maybe have some uh, fringe interests. Mm-hmm. This gives us the ability to find someone to talk to who there might only be two or three or five other people that will ever come across in our lifetime that we can have this conversation with. And through the magic of this, like we get to do this and it doesn't matter if no one else cares about it. And if only 10 people listen to it, our goal or our hope would be that there are other people out there who have the same spirit and love it just as much as we do. But the reality is, is that there might not be, sure. but that's like, okay. That's secondary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and part of the, the ability to go deep and have these kinds of conversations is that hopefully someone discovers it and, and resonates with it. But kind of what I've learned in the process of doing the podcast is that ultimately if that doesn't happen, it doesn't matter because oh. really this medium gives us the opportunity to talk to like-minded individuals in maybe a a more formalized or, or recorded for posterity context. But this is the kind of conversation that we would have, you know, like on the phone if we got introduced to each other and ultimately it doesn't as much as I would hope that other people would enjoy it. You know, I, I don't mean this selfishly, but it, it really, I have to believe that it doesn't matter because I'm enjoying it so much and it's so worthwhile to me that I get to talk to you. That, you know, yeah. I, I would love it if, if, if I, you know. People got found, found meaning in it too, but yes, exactly. Uh, you ultimately, any, any type of creative endeavor, you can talk yourself out of is it sounds like you've got that capacity too and and the way you talk about uh taking on a bigger sun Ra project like writing or or what have you but whatever creative project my thought process is that you know i can't think of it in terms of you know yeah you're never going to write like the beatles you're never going to create something as multi-dimensional in the same way as sun Ra, etc but you can create something that you want to experience it your, yourself and the, the way that you would want to experience it. So, Yeah. You know, I would, the, the, you know, the, the, that first round of, of podcasts that I did for Sunrise Archive, ultimately I wanted to and would have done those anyway. It's just mm-hmm. that 
the medium and the technology gave me a forum where that I could share them. And I hope that they're of value and of benefit to other people. But at the end of the day, I would have done it anyway and wanted to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And if it helps any other or provides enjoyment for other people, that's great. And that's like everything else that I'm trying to do is to just basically pass to, on to, what, to, what's given yeah, to, to pass it on and, and hopefully, you know, in the process. So, you know, getting back to the larger project idea, I could, you know, I could do any number of things, but I, I want there to be what I believe to be a worthwhile reason to do it and, <laughs> and have something to share that honors the art, but also stands for posterity, that it's not right. a vanity project for the sake of doing it as much as I would love to see a Sun Ra book or documentary or whatever that I was involved in sitting on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, you know, ultimately, what do I have to say that's of that's unique or of value that is what, as a, as a, um, reader or an audience that I would find a value. And I just haven't, I haven't arrived there yet. You mm-hmm. know, like what's the thesis there, there, there could be any number of them <laughs> and there's too many. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? Right. Uh, you know, write a 10 volume, <laughs> you know, 20,000 page encyclopedia of Sunra. Well, it's that's possible. just, <laughs> logistically commercially well, that's yeah. not that's not feasible right. um but my hope in in sh- kind of sharing whatever it is i find the way along the way is that if i ultimately don't arrive at that solution like what it is like here's what i've learned and here's what i'm going to transmit forward as some kind of grand understanding or statement that whoever comes behind me Mm-hmm. might be able to use whatever small amount of information I've been able to cobble together and, and kind of move forward to formulate their grand discovery mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that hopefully sure. I'll still be around to benefit <laughs> to, to, yeah, from, right? right? I mean, we oh, all kind of have our own, we got to believe that, that we kind of all have our own part to play in it. And maybe oh, yeah. this yeah. is, this is my part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you personally, uh, I almost shouldn't listen to your podcast unless I've got uh, money to burn because each episode I end up spending money. I'm telling you, you like I went and I had to go get some modern harmonic releases. Once I heard that one, I uh, went and ordered the earthly uh, recordings. When I heard that episode, I already had joyful noise, thankfully, but uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're causing, you're, you're lighting the fire in me to, uh, to, to dive deeper. That's for sure. That's wonderful. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm assuming with you saying that and knowing that we're, you know, from the similar generation, it's important for us to have a physical artifact, right? You know, oh, to go it's, out it's, yeah, it's and huge. buy the book or to buy the record or to buy the CD and have these things, you know, to be able to tactily mm-hmm. pull out and learn from. But the beauty is, and the, you know, the other worthwhile thing is that in doing so, it, it's, it's, you're supporting right now 
excellent companies that are distributing this work, but for the first time in, in Sunrise, um, kind of, well, definitely since um, he left the planet, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the sale of this work is actually, the proceeds of that are actually legally being distributed properly. And the band right. and the heirs and everybody involved is actually legitimately being compensated the way that that business is set up to, to be structured. Yeah, it's that's it's huge. a wonderful thing to support those products. But on the flip side, knowing that when we're talking about Sunra, we're not talking about you buy one or two definitive books and <laughs> 10 <you're> records <laughs> and you're done. You're talking about tens of you know, worthwhile books and mm -hmm. hundreds of recordings. Okay. Yeah. So it's from a investment standpoint, you know, uh, who has the money to do that, especially if you want to start chasing down Saturn's or original uh, releases. No. But, I, just, just for the uh, curiosity factor, I, you know, of course went through Discogs, checking out the Saturn uh, things on there and, oh man, yeah. <laughs> it's I definitely need to be in a different uh, uh, price bracket of income to be able to afford those things. But the beauty is, is that if you don't have the cash and that's mm -hmm. not of a concern to you, we, we live in this age where for the first time, if you learn about a record and, and you want to hear it, if you've, if you've got an online connection, it's all there True, true. for free. I know. I you know, know uh, and the, the you know the original discographers and researchers and fans, there were probably none of them at the time that had everything. Yeah, like we, it's easy for us to forget, uh, you know, the benefit of the work that's been done mm -hmm. uh, by those researchers uh, and the access that we have technologically True. and also work that's been done on behalf of the Sunrise State to make all this stuff accessible. But this is the first time where if you really want to hear every commercially released recording by Sunra, you can if you have the time to listen to it. Yeah. And that's such an incredible gift. That is a huge gift. You're right. It's, it's mind-blowing. So it's all out there. Then the question becomes, where do you start? Well, okay, yeah. Like, yeah. So, all I can share is what my entry point was, and the records that stuck with me that I revisit mm -hmm. through time sure. that I can call off the top of my head. Right. So it's it's all. I think it's all based on what your taste is yeah, and yeah. how you're coming to the music, mm -hmm. and that would tailor the answer. Right. Of if course, someone came course. to me and said, "Oh, you know." I, I think I'd like to check out some Sunra and, you know, I'm really into African percussion. Uh, that would, you know, that would change the answer or someone that's coming at it from free jazz or someone that likes funk or someone that is really into synths mm -hmm. and Moog music, you know? So as is with anything that relates to Sunra, there's more than one answer. So all I can tell you is what my experience was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what and, the, your, and the records that I revisit. For me, it started with 
angels and demons at play and Nubians of Plutonia, mm -hmm. which are still two of my favorite records and two records that I think that mark an incredibly special time in the orchestra's evolution. A fertile um, period too, right? In Chicago, right? Having elements of the big band jazz heritage and band structure, the influences of bebop and more adventurous 50s jazz, coupled with the introduction of, for lack of a better term, world music or the music of native cultures is reflected mm -hmm. in the African drumming, chanting, and wordless vocals, as well as looking forward to the avant-garde that was to come. To me, those records, Angels and Demons of Play and Nubians of Plutonia, are a perfect synthesis for my tastes right. because it, it combines... Um, those elements in a highly listenable and easily understandable way has elements of signposts of convention that someone that's new to the music can understand. Yeah, can hold on to while they're taking that ride. Absolutely, but has yeah. enough diversity of musical influence and imagination and um, historical elements and non-earthly hints that it, it kind of synthesizes all of those things really beautifully right you've got the yeah. you've got jazz you've got ancient music and culture you've got spiritual concerns you've got titles that call uh, onto matters of ancient knowledge and archaeology as well as you know the aspects of space and multi-dimensional thought so for me those that's where i started and those are still very special records to me and ones that i would suggest to people that might come from a, a traditional bebop and post bebop 50s jazz um and someone that that may have exposure to world music and reggae and kind of understand some of those musical textures mm -hmm. and, and might be interested in, in some of the spiritual and historical aspects. They're all right there, but they're easy yeah. to get. And then additionally, jazz in silhouette, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from the late 50s is an album that you know is foundational in the Sun Ra catalog for me because uh, like uh, Nubians and Angels has a lot of that sensibility but is definitely more quote-unquote conventional as far as the relationship to to more traditional jazz forms, arranging yeah. exactly in compositional forms so if you're like uh, someone who wants to get into jazz and you bought Miles Davis kind of blue and you may never go farther than five, five jazz records or 10 jazz records in your collection. Jazz mm -hmm. and Silhouette is, is one that I would recommend because it stands up with all of those, you know, must own top 10 jazz CDs. But it also for me, 
by being able to stand alongside those other works, it becomes very clear where Sun Ra is differentiated and was unique within that form, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. the, your, the listener's mind can identify, oh, this sounds like, you know, Miles Davis, this sounds like John Coltrane, this sounds like Dave Brubeck, and I understand that and recognize that, and that puts in sharp contrast where Sun Ra was unique compositionally yeah. and arrangement-wise. And it's such an easily, yeah. easy listening record that mm-hmm. if you're only going to have one or two um, and, and you think of jazz in a more conventional sense, meaning Miles Davis kind of blue, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the most well-known the, best-selling yeah. perennial jazz album of all time. Jazz mm-hmm. and Silhouette is the one. When I got into Sun Ra and I wanted to share it, with my friends and family and those evidence CDs came out that year. That's what I bought and gave to the music fans for a holiday gift mm-hmm. to say, here's Sun Ra, check them out. You know, I hope you love it as much as I do. I knew that if they were music fans who were pretty well-rounded, that they would understand it and it wouldn't be alienating. it's the foot in the door exactly and if they never heard another record it would be one that they could revisit over the years and appreciate at a face value Mm -hmm. but it also had enough signposts that if they were intrigued at at the kind of deeper musical levels that it would give them a jump a really solid jumping off standpoint yeah those are all really uh solid you know, in my opinion, like you said, yep. it's all super individual. Yep. But yeah. So, so you know, to provide a little bit of contrast, number three would be Languidity, that originally mm-hmm. came out in Philly Jazz in 1978, which is a you know later 70s kind of groove and funk uh, yeah. inspired record that again has all of the unique transcendent elements of Sun Ra's music, but it's presented in a very, you know, and this is in the context of Sun Ra's catalog and some of it to some people would be very hard to listen to, mm-hmm. but Languidity is very easy to listen to and very easy to understand. So people that are into dance music and right. groove music and jamming and funk, Languidity, it, it would be a beginner's choice. Interesting. And, and then, um, Next up would be the two spaces, well, two of the spaces, the place albums. There's three, but the two for me would be the Impulse uh, release of Spaces the Place, which is a studio album recorded in at Streeterville Studios in Chicago in 1972, which is a, a great point in, in um, the Sun Ra timeline because it has the longer form compositions it has some of the well-known chant-based compositions like space is the place right includes the synthesizer influence from the late 60s through to the 70s it includes more for lack of a better word, traditional big band arrangements, mm-hmm, meaning mm-hmm. melodic and harmonic based compositions, as well as providing the contrast of the avant-garde 
soloing and song construction kind of all in one record right yeah and then the other one that was one of my first ones was that record yeah and a really easy to listen to and understand record if you're up for it and then the companion to that being the space is the place soundtrack to the film that features all the music that was in the sun Ra yeah um fictional quasi-fictional film uh that came out on evidence records on cd uh in the 90s and to me those are kind of a, a good pair because they're of a similar time period they share the same name but they cover tons of musical ground in two cds and then i could go on forever but one <laughs> an, another album that has gained prominence in my mind as a go-to that i don't have as much history with but i think is profoundly unique in the canon and opens up sunrise music to a whole other kind of listener would be the recent it's not so recent anymore, but mm-hmm. the reissue by Cosmic Myth Records of Monorails and Satellites, oh, okay. which is solo piano, acoustic solo piano recording of Sun Ra that was originally released um, over two volumes on LP, Monorails and Satellites, Volumes 1 and 2. And there was additional material recorded that was never released uh, as volume three in Cosmic Myth, which is the vinyl and CD imprint of Sunra LLC. They released it um, not only on CD, but in a beautiful tri-gatefold mm. vinyl pressing on three records. What's really uh, noteworthy about this album for me is that it provides a comprehensive look at Sun Ra as a solo pianist and musician and performer, largely performing original composition. So uh, many other following solo piano recordings of Sun Ra that followed later um, might have been more boogie-woogie stride blues based Mm -hmm. piano or strictly avant-garde improvisation but what uh, monorails and satellites does is it collects all of it it collects a multitude of sunrise approaches as an instrumentalist to the acoustic piano which to my ear as much as the his synthesizer work is absolutely important and pioneering mm-hmm. to hear the being's touch on an acoustic instrument is really very understandable to understand his approach as a musician to you know a widely used instrument right yeah. so where the synthesizer his use of the synthesizer was so unique we don't as critical listeners have as many examples to compare it to, but with monorails being acoustic piano, it gives a listener that might be newer to Sun Ra that is a pianist themselves or someone that loves classical piano or jazz piano or any other forms to have an entryway into Sun Ra as a musician and a composer on a universally understood instrument. So right. it provides Through some a medium that's understood universally. Yeah, some 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 context. 
So that would be another recommendation mm. and uh, just an, another one, even though it's not my area of expertise, would have to be um, My Brother, The Wind, Volume 1 and 2, purely as a demonstration of Sunrise, you know, early pioneering adoption of the Moog synthesizer and synthesizers. Mm -hmm. It's not something that necessarily for me resonates deeply uh, because I just, because I'm not a synth player and I don't understand some of the mechanics that go into it to really be able to appreciate it other than just a listening experience. This role, yeah visceral experience i know there's way more to that music than i'm getting but mm -hmm. for whatever reason with my filters i just don't get it but i know that because of you know the pioneering work that he did that if someone likes experimental music synths soundtracks uh, music as a textural form that those are really important records for people to check out if that's kind of their viewpoint yeah yeah and Those we could go on forever. <laughs> right, right. I know. I'm sure as you say one, you're you're like, oh, wait a minute. There's this one. Too. <laughs> I'm that way when I'm talking about music too, especially something that you're so passionate about and uh, realize that you forgot to mention this other, you know, like you said, facet of uh, his expression. Yeah. And, you know, and you, and you want people to have a good first experience so that maybe they can and share some of the joy, but you, you want to be a good steward. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so it's not really so much, it's partially my taste, but it's trying to, to make a good recommendation so that there's more Sunra fans and that people can get some benefit from it. Right. You know, the other record that was really important to me, you know, and it's still important to me, but it was important to me when it came out and I was a newer Sunra fan, is Live at the Pit Inn from August 8th, 1988, 8888. It's a live record that was available uh, on import from Japan on the DIW uh, label. Yeah. And it's a live, it's a live concert that's very representative of the late 80s, uh, orchestra or the later era orchestra mm -hmm. when Sunrod, John Gilmore, June Tyson were still present and mm -hmm. the opening discipline 27-2 that opens that up is just one of the greatest you know five to ten minutes of Sunrod on record for me as far as pure as far as capturing the pure power and joy that someone could would experience when they were in the room with that band and they hit the stage. Yeah. It's wow. just, it's transcendent. And that record is well recorded. And it also includes other examples of the different facets of their set lists at the time. So you get, you get, you know, that, that discipline opener, which was common, you get the, mm -hmm. the Fletcher Henderson tunes, you get yeah. the, unidentified blues you get space chance and i think it's a great gateway record as far as the later era live experience and i, I think that the late later era of sun Ra is still awaiting the recognition and, and wider appreciation within the context of his artistic legacy that it deserves 
yeah. um, as far as its importance alongside the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Well, yeah. I mean, once you get into the 60s and, and 70s, uh, the work is so explosive and vibrant that, yeah, I think the uh, 80s period gets not, you know, it, it gets overshadowed just because of, you know, just wild innovation that was happening before that. But yeah, there was, they were so strong in the 80s. Yeah, they were so strong and they were touring frequently in accessible venues right so in, in earlier periods when they were when they were more centralized around the geographic location you know new york or philly or chicago unless you were a resident and aware of the jazz clubs that they were playing at a normal kind of popular music fan would have had less opportunities to experience them you know a common story that it's told by by someone like the filmmaker Robert Muggy and I know other Sunra fans share the experience was you know they would have seen Sunra uh, on a festival date mm-hmm. you know a jazz festival or a jazz and blues festival Which but is what happened yeah. Yeah. but what happened in the 80s is that they were being booked into common rock clubs for lack of a better word. So they were, they were able to expose themselves or make them accessible, not only to the people that were already their fans, but to local music fans that might, might trust the booking of a venue. And just if a band was cool enough to get booked in the venue and I've got, five or 10 bucks on a Friday or Saturday night, I'm going to go check out this band mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I go see all the bands that, that, that come to the club in my scene. And to go back to something we touched on earlier, which is, you know, where do Sun Ra fans come from? I think that there are a lot of fans like myself or, or maybe like you, but you know, a, a lot of, my friends that that's how we were exposed you know the orchestra was gigging at venues like the 930 club Mm -hmm. the bottom line the catalyst in santa cruz you know and and uh ruthie's in and these venues that weren't jazz clubs they were pop you know rock clubs that was the parlance of the day and in it on Thursday night, it could be Black Flag. And on Friday night, it could be the Sun Ra Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that exposed them to a whole new crowd um, that, that, they, that would have never had the chance to be exposed to them. And that's why that, that pit-in CD, I think, is important as an entry point for someone that's new to the band because that would have been the era and the show that was presented to that generation of fans mm-hmm. and it was a show that you know you, you had talked about how the music evolved over time and made certain demands or assumptions of the listeners but the way that i see sun Ra's presentation evolving over time and how he was trying to reach people and and maybe how his artist artistry evolved over time was that how I perceive the set lists and the cosmodrama of 
of the story that was told through to the beginning and the end of the show through the different types of music and the chants and the recitations was that he part of his art became the curation and presentation of the show to communicate to a wider audience and to provide most of the touch points that he hit mm. on through uh -huh. all of the decade in one show that's in one 70 point. minutes mm -hmm. and that's why that that pit in 1988 live show i think is so important because it's really a reflection of how his presentation of a live performance evolved mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i know i don't want to keep you too long and this question could probably spool out for quite a while but how do you you know being a musician yourself i'm not sure how music theory oriented you are myself i'm not i was all ear-based musician but with some you know accidental theory knowledge but uh, mm -hmm. i uh, know enough to know that i don't know enough <laughs> yeah yeah i i fully support that statement myself <laughs> yep. and and a word that you used earlier that really struck me it, it largely informs um my approach to playing music which is that i'm an intuitive musician mm -hmm. right so i have less theoretical comprehension because it goes back to something i said earlier that i'm not very mathematically oriented right. which yeah. i think is part of the crux of theory mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but i have enough of an understanding to know that it's not my strong suit and that i mm -hmm. wish that i knew more yeah and so are, do you feel able to speak to the evolution of uh both or if you would even call it that of of Sun Ra's compositional style and improvisational style? Yeah. So through the different it, periods. Yeah. So, so is, is what you're asking uh, what his evolution was from a theoretical not necessarily, standpoint? Not necessarily theoretical. Uh, maybe if there's a way to talk about approach or, or, or how to put it without, you know, without saying you know not in the terms of you know he was would always end on a diminished fifth or this you know what that's you know shows my lack of, of theory but you know what i mean not sure not in a super music theory academic sense but in a term in terms that you know yeah, perhaps no, I... the, the average listener that has just the a grasp of of structure of music could understand. Sure. So I think that you need to take into consideration with Sun Ra a couple of foundational philosophies or personality traits that to, to my ear inform his evolution as a composer and a performer. And I can't speak to, you know, the, th the specific theoretical examples of, of how that took form. But I think foundationally, the most important thing to, re to remember about Sun Ra or to consider about Sun Ra is that 
He seems to have been a holistic being, meaning that his concerns and what he was trying to achieve within his experience, within his performance, and within his composition touched on all of the elements that are available to a musician and a composer. Hmm. So stylistically, that could take many different forms. So Hmm. there's that aspect that makes answering that question, you know, maybe that's, that would be a good subject for a book. There's that aspect. Mm -hmm. The second one that I perceive is that carrying over that idea of being a holistic being, meaning that everything is valid and of interest is that on one hand, Sun Ra seemed to be fully present within his time, meaning that he was always aware of trends in popular music, stylistically, technologically, as far as advances in instruments and recording technology, as well as evolving music styles. So because his career covered such a wide range of time, there's, there's that to consider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the second, the, the third thing that strikes me as, as being very telling in, in, trying to, uh, in trying to wrap your head around an answer to that question is that the thing that resonates with, with me, that I intuit from Sun Ra, is that he was, in addition to the, to the holistic nature of music, the times that he lived in, and then conversely being interested in the times then, both ancient, prior times, yet to happen times, or maybe already happened, but he was waiting for them to happen, is that <laughs> he was a life earner and a student. Mm. And that he was always evolving and transforming himself. And the, and the being that he was in the 50s was not the totality of the being that he was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that he was building on a foundation and always evolving. So I think you need to take those criteria when you look at his music, musical evolution mm-hmm. and understand that that like all the other things that we talked about, there are, a, there are multi facets and criteria that you can evaluate this by. And that maybe at the end of the day, that's not a worthwhile endeavor because there are, there are a hundred answers to the same question. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but the thing that impresses me as far as his evolution, and I hope that this starts to touch on answering your question, is that Sun Ra, as you know, Herman Poole Blunt, started very young as a musician in Birmingham, Alabama, inspired by the jazz music of the day at that very impressionable time 
in our lives, right? And mm -hmm. those records that he heard by Fletcher Henderson when he was 18 or 19 years old when they came out would be like what we talked about earlier, the impression that the Beatles made on us when we were children or yeah. the music made on us as teenagers. And I believe that like the rest of us, the, that, that stayed with him throughout his entire life. And while that influence might have gone dormant in his public output, there was a time later in, in the 70s where he started playing those big band songs again mm -hmm. and where they became a huge feature in the 80s. Yeah. So again, this is the first stone in a path. And he evolved up through, you know, big band and becoming a composer and a band leader himself in Birmingham and influencing the evolution of, of the American songbook and popular song in addition to the evolution of jazz. Sure. And then, you know, as jazz evolved to the, to the 50s, you know, and bebop, he's adding all of this musical information um, and theoretical approaches on top of each other. And mm -hmm. he's, uh, he's applying that through his own unique vision or, or mission mm -hmm. and synth synthesizing them, which is an interesting word, you know, yeah. to think of with Sun Ra when we think of, you know, his love of words, homonyms, mm -hmm. the instrument and the synthesizer. But I think that that's, the key to understanding him as a composer and arranger in that evolution. We could keep going through the decades right, right, as right. music and technology evolved and how he, how he took his own concerns as a being and as a, as an, an artist and drew on that, added all of his research into older not only musical, but historical, philosophical, spiritual information, mm -hmm. and just continue to build on that and evolve. And, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that there are many answers to that question. And if you have an agenda as a musicologist or a musician that you're trying to prove via Sun Ra, that he... <laughs> that he played this kind of music or oh, used yeah, this yeah. kind of song structure or sure. this kind of chord or scalar approach, there's probably one example of everything For that you each, can find yeah. in this recorded output. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what he was so masterful at doing, what it was synthesizing all of those things into a completely unique vision and presentation. I don't think that it answers your specific original question, I, I think it kind of gives some insight into yeah, it gives, it why gives, with my knowledge, I don't, and, and I don't think that that question is actually answerable. Right. Well, and it, was, it, it, it was somewhat open-ended to on purpose for that reason <laughs> to kind of get your, your take on, you know, how his compositional, method and style or i should say styles kind of uh how you absorbed those and sure because i'll say for myself i think i took one of the reasons why i didn't necessarily consciously step away from 
but I didn't dive as deep as I would have right away is there's, there's a uh, tonality that he explores uh, some of his arrangements, some of his uh, harmonies, I guess you could even say, but that almost touch on an in-between frequency type of feeling and sound in, uh, in some compositions that if, if I had to think about it, uh, it, you know, is probably to me intuitively feels like, you know, I'm kind of touching on that multidimensional level, but also like, you know, when you're not prepared for it as a listener at my uh, early stage was somewhat, un, you know, could be a little unsettling. Like I, it wasn't uh, something I could put on all the time or at least certain sections, as you say, because there's so many different facets to his his musical output. But, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an interesting point and absolutely true, right? So, you know, that approach to the notes in main, and especially if it is primary instrument as a keyboard, in it, mm-hmm. which is a measured distance of tonal relation, part of, I think, what you're expressing is, was Sun Ra's ability, and this is why I cited the monorails and satellites solo piano record as being so important, is because it clearly demonstrates that Sun Ra had the ability and the knowledge and the experience to play the notes in between the keys mm-hmm. by playing, you know, harmonic relationships and multiple key ones like in music or Indian right. instruments right. that mm-hmm. have the microtonal type microtonal of. elements that mm-hmm. you don't hear in Western music that you're absolutely right. He, he was able to incorporate that microtonal aspect into, into his piano playing by playing essentially in between the keys. Mm-hmm. If you watch video footage of him, absolutely the facility and the and the experience that which, yeah, absolutely differentiates himself. And I think as an extension um, in his arrangement for the band, like con- contrasting different in sections against each other, he was able to achieve that tonally. Plus yeah. he had the great benefit of having instrumentalists that, that were capable of doing the same thing on their respective instruments that he oh, was yeah. able to do on the piano, like yeah. uh, John Gilmore, oh, who could God. split tones and, and almost create, you know, a, an effect similar to throat singing. So I think that's a good on. I'm not aware that any musicologist has, has really answered the question that you asked, but it's a fascinating fascinating one. Okay, well that's going to do it for another show. I want to thank you for taking the time to tune your proverbial dial out my way and to eavesdrop on conversations 
that can be by turns meaningful and strange and plumb the mysteries of creativity and existence, really. So, thanks again for listening. Be sure to rate, review, tell your friends about Out My Way. I'd really appreciate it. And as I said earlier, this is just the first part of an ongoing dialogue with Christopher. So look for more episodes coming up. And speaking of coming up, next episode will be with Daniel Higgs. Uh, He is a modern mystic. I have seen his journey from his first band in the mid-80s all the way through to now. He plumbs the depths of language and comes out howling at the void. And what's not to like about that? So, that's going to do it. And maybe one day we'll have a conversation of our own. Uh, You and I can go out your way, out my way, because out is the way in. And as the immortal Sun Ra says, space is the place. So let's create some more intentional space, guys. Make this planet a better place. All right, this is Brian signing off. Thank you.